Titus chapter 3, we'll read verses 3 through 7 together. The Apostle Paul says here in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is a glorious text of Scripture, God. Too glorious, Father. Father, I'm not worthy to speak on these things, Father, so I ask for your blessing. God, I ask for your mercy on my mouth and my mind, and I ask for your mercy and your grace on the ears of our church, God. I pray more than anything, God, that your text would shine through today, Father, that your church would be reminded, God, of these things, that what we came from, what you brought us through, to what this glorious salvation should bring about in our lives, God. We need grace for all of these things. Bless this time, please, God. Send your spirit, comfort us, God. Help us to be quick to hear. I ask these things for your namesake, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we see here, our text today is found in this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this man, Titus, in which Paul is giving him instructions because Titus has been appointed as an elder in the churches on this island of Crete. And we looked a few months ago, actually, at Titus chapter 2. We're there in Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul laid out for Titus all the different ways that all the different types of Christians in the churches were to function in a way that would glorify God. And Paul said in verse 10 of chapter 2 that all of this instruction that he was giving on godly living was for the purpose of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. And what was this doctrine of the Savior that we're to be adorning with our holy lives? Well, Paul explained in verse 11 through 14 of chapter 2 that the doctrine that we're to be adorning is the doctrine of God's grace, the grace that came to us through the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Now, this grace that he spoke of here was not only grace that saves us from the wrath of God, but it's also a grace that saves us from ourselves and from our sins. Chapter 2, verse 12 said it's a grace that's instructing us to, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and it's a grace that's instructing us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And so chapter 2 was all about our good works adorning the grace of God in Christ. That was chapter 2. We looked at that a couple of months ago. But 
Now, what's so interesting to me, as you continue to read on from chapter 2 into chapter 3, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul felt like he hadn't quite said enough about the beauty of this salvation that Jesus purchased for us and why it should inspire Titus's churches to godly living. Because after seemingly finishing his thought and wrapping it up in chapter 2, Paul here moves into chapter 3, once again addressing the same realities, the same glories of the grace that we have received. And Paul, in so doing, as he moves into chapter 3 here, he actually addresses one particular aspect of our salvation that he did not mention in chapter 2. And this aspect of the grace of God that Paul now mentions in chapter 3 is a favorite among us good Calvinists. Um, it's the subject of regeneration. This is a very common term in our vocabulary, in our conversations. It's very common in Reformed circles to use the language of regeneration. But what's so interesting is, is as common as that word is, um, interestingly, it's only used one time in the New Testament to speak of salvation. And so why, why is regeneration such a big deal to us if the New Testament only mentions it one time? Well, it's because the concept is all over the Bible. The concept, the doctrine of regeneration is spoken of in many other places in the Bible, which is slightly different language, slightly different words. In John 3, Jesus refers to regeneration as, call, as calling it being born again. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls it being made alive. In James, he calls it being brought forth or being birthed by God. And so this reality of the new birth is what Paul's speaking about here in Titus 3, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of being born again or being made alive by God. And so we'll, we'll get to all that in verse 5, but that's not how Paul starts off here in chapter 3. He doesn't start off with regeneration. As we see here in chapter 3, he actually begins with a much, a much darker reality. In verse 3, Paul here begins by reminding us of why we need regeneration. Why is regeneration needed in the first place? The answer is, as we see here beginning in verse 3, that spiritually speaking, we were once not alive, but we were spiritually dead. Let's read verse 3 again. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's quite a, an explicit and striking list of adjectives. And we're not going to stop and, and look at each one of these characteristics of the unregenerate, but the reality of our state before coming to Christ is ugly. It's bleak. Our condition prior to salvation is repulsive to God. And Paul here is not afraid to just stack sinful behavior on top of sinful behavior to describe that, to describe our lives at that time. And so why does Paul go to such extremes here in writing out such a lengthy description of our prior state? Well, if you look in the context here, just the first couple of verses in chapter 3, what Titus is being told here by Paul is to instruct his flock to be obedient to the rulers and authorities over them, most of whom would not have been Christian. 
And so to help keep his church from being prideful, to help keep them from being arrogant and therefore disobedient to those over them, the Apostle Paul reminds them of their own past ways. And so as Paul goes on here, we'll see that, that Paul also describes the Christian's past to Titus and to his church and therefore to us by extension so that we'll appreciate, so that we'll appreciate the grace of God that's been given to us. That's why Paul goes through this litany of, of examples of how sinful and how fallen we were. And so the question is, what do you think when you read verse 3? Do you think when you read verse 3, well, that doesn't really sound much like I ever was? Or I don't think I was ever that bad. Well, if you ever think that, I mean, you're really deceiving yourself. Because here, just as in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, which is a classical verse on this, Paul universalizes really the condition of everyone who's yet unconverted. This is for everyone. The Apostle Paul includes himself here in this very statement in verse 3. Paul here is likewise including himself because he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, even the great Saul of Tarsus, the holier than thou, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, in reality, whether he knew it or not, was at that time, at least he didn't realize it, he was disobedient. He was deceived. That Pharisee, that, that ruler of the, of the Jewish religion at that time was enslaved to various lusts. I think the reason many don't see themselves as Paul describes them is because of that very first word mentioned there in verse 3. Foolish. Foolish. Because in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, this word is used to speak of a spiritual foolishness. A spiritual foolishness. It's the same word that Jesus used on the road to Emmaus when those disciples had not understood everything that the Old Testament had taught. Jesus told them, you're foolish and slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets had said. It's the same word. It's a spiritual foolishness, a blindness. And so what happens is many will remain lost. Many will remain comfortable their whole lives in their seemingly self-righteousness, just comparing themselves to other unregenerate people in this world and not realizing that they actually need Christ's righteousness in place of their own if they're ever going to be in God's presence. It's a blindness, it's a foolishness to think that you don't need the righteousness of Christ. And so what's, what's really amazing about this passage is that even against this backdrop, this is the backdrop, this is how he starts, this description of our sinfulness and our repulsive nature that we lived in for so long, many of us. The amazing thing is what the following verses say. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so first off, I just say, don't you love it when the Bible says, but God but God. Because if it wasn't for all these but God scriptures, uh, but God texts in the scriptures, we would be all doomed if God would not have intervened. It, again, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. It says the same thing, where we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God made us alive 
in Christ. So thank God for his kindness. Thank God for his love for fallen mankind. If it wasn't for the but God, we, we would most certainly all be damned. But notice here is verse 4 also. Notice that God's kindness and love did not remain unreachably transcendent, but it actually appeared. And how do kindness, how does love appear? Well, the answer is that God's kindness and God's love appeared the same way that God's grace appeared in chapter 2, verse 11. And so the grace, the kindness, the love of God were all personified, they were all revealed in the incarnation of the Son of God. This is speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. This is the kindness and love of God on display. And so because Christ came, because he appeared and with him the grace and love and kindness of God, let no one, let no one ever deceive you into questioning the love of God. It's unquestionable at this point. Never let your circumstances whisper into your ears that God does no longer love you. Never let the fact that God has not put a stop to the absolute cliff dive of our society around us into the utter depths of depravity. Don't allow this to question God's love and care for his church. The coming of Christ has once for all made God's love and kindness an unquestionable fact. Jesus himself said, there's no greater love that a man has than he lays down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did. So now in the coming of Christ, in the giving of Christ, we see something else. We also see that the fact of, that God's love and kindness is not arbitrary. Christ had to come. It's not arbitrary because God is just and righteous. The God of the Bible is not like the God of the Quran. God does not simply forgive sinners without a payment for sin. All of God's love and kindness is based on something it's based on the work and payment that was made by the death of Jesus Christ. And so it was by looking to the sacrifice of Jesus that was going to be given that God forgave all the sins of the Old Testament saints. And it's also by the same substitutionary death that God extends his love and kindness to us that now live on this side of the cross. And so all of God's saving love from the very beginning of time has all been based on the death of Jesus Christ. And so because of what Jesus did, verse 5 goes on. Based on the appearing and the love of Jesus and his, his coming, verse 5 goes on to say, Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And so this is, this is the contrast. This is the contrast here. The mercy of God through the coming of Jesus, his sinless, die, uh, sinless life, his death, his resurrection, and therefore our salvation versus our salvation based on what we do. That's the contrast. And this is, this is one of the great dividing lines between Christianity, true Christianity, and all other religions. God's religion gives him all of the glory, all of the credit for what he has done in Christ. As where every other religion add to the work of Jesus in some way. They all add some system of works righteousness by which they can save themselves. And sure, there's, there's many pseudo, there's many false 
false Christian religions that use the name of Jesus, and they all have Jesus as some part of their being made right with God, but they all add to the work of Jesus in some way through human merit. And Paul says very clearly in Galatians chapter 5 that if you add anything to the work of Christ, you forfeited everything that Christ did. If you add anything, anything to the work of Christ. And so this is the gospel distinction. Whether you are fully satisfied and fully resting in the work of Christ, or if you're still trusting in your good works as well. There's many verses There's many verses in the scriptures that state the fact that man is not saved by works. I could have spent the whole time quoting them, but just a a couple that you probably know. For example, you don't even have to turn there. I'll just read them. Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul says. In Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And you probably know many other verses. Hopefully you do. But what's so amazing is that how can it be that with so many texts in the Bible so clearly excluding works from being the basis for one's salvation, how can so many pseudo-Christian religions still hold an erroneous view like this? Well, what happens is a lot of the times many take that phrase, the works of the law, When Paul there says, man is not justified by works of the law, they believe that the works of the law is is strictly speaking of old covenant works. They think Paul's only excluding a certain kind of work, where there would be new covenant works that you most certainly can use as the basis for your salvation. Um, So many trust in their works. Um, They they try to fit their works into a more general category of works that Paul Um, actually excludes also elsewhere in Scripture. Um, But Paul here is not saying that that we're not saved by certain kind of works. And that's what I love about this passage here, is it's so explicit. It's so explicit. That's why I love it, because Paul explicitly rules out any hope of any works, any deeds, being the basis for one's salvation. Because here he's not just saying that we're not saved by works. He does not say that we're not saved by works of the law. He's saying here in our passage that even deeds done in righteousness are not the basis of your salvation. It excludes any possibility of our works being the basis for God saving us. No human effort will ever save a man, not even righteous deeds. And so I think it's helpful to ask a few questions about this. For instance, is baptism a righteous deed? Yes, it is. Being baptized is the the first act of righteous obedience that we can do for God. And so therefore, based on this text, it's excluded from being a basis for your salvation. Many people believe that their baptism is going to attribute to their salvation. And that's something that God um, is going to see as as uh, righteous enough, I guess, or, or worthy enough, or enough obedience for them to be saved. But based on this text in Titus chapter 3, it's excluded. Is being a preacher of the gospel, is that a righteous deed? It is a righteous deed. And guess what? Paul also excludes that from being any basis for your merit with, with God. Prayer. Prayer is a righteous deed as well. So therefore, that's not going to work either to get you into heaven. 
Paul's saying the only basis for our salvation is strictly the mercy of God. Mankind, mankind does not earn his salvation, for he cannot. Salvation is of the Lord, and it's according to his grace, and it's according to his choice to extend mercy or not. And because this is the reality, that God and his mercy is our only hope, that this is the place you must come to. You must come to the place where you have abandoned all hope of earning your salvation. You need to make this clear in your mind, clear in your soul, clear in your heart, that you are not trusting in anything that you've done. You need to come to the place where you are fully falling on the work of Jesus Christ, that all of your hope, all of your trust is in only what he did. Only what he did. I don't know, after reading verse 3 as we read, you would think this wouldn't be that hard of a place for people to come to, to fall fully on the Lord Jesus Christ because of that description that verse 3 gave of us of how sinful we are. You'd think that man would be desperate for a Savior. The problem is, again, like I said in verse 3, man is foolish. Man doesn't even realize the horrible condition that he is in apart from Jesus Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't realize that he's self-deceived even while living in all kinds of various sins, being enslaved, being led around in life by his various lusts and pleasures, all the while thinking they're bringing him joy and satisfaction in life. Ephesians 2 says it most pointedly concerning the unconverted, they're dead. They're dead in their sins. Of course, he's speaking spiritually dead here, not physically dead, because the body of unbelievers is, is quite active in walking according to the power of the prince of this air. They're very active in walking after the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul describes the lost state in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where there he says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the glory of Christ. They can't see the gospel of God and the glory of Christ. They can't see it. And so if this is the condition of fallen man, as the Bible says, if there's none who understand, if there's none who seeks for God, so Paul says in Romans 3, how is it that any can be saved? If man is blinded by Satan, if man is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and not seeking after God then something must happen. Something else has to happen. Man must be changed. And thank God that's exactly what he does. It's exactly what he does. When Christ has satisfied the wrath of God on the behalf of a sinner, and God's mercy is being extended to that sinner, and God has chosen to save him, he brings about this change in the spiritually dead sinner, just as verse 5 here goes on to say. He says he does it, verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The change comes through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now again, I just note that many commentators throughout church history have viewed this word translated here, washing, they view that in the context of baptism. They link the washing there with baptism. 
it's really quite amazing if you think about it because I immediately I have to disagree with the interpretation first and foremost because if that was true, if this washing was referred, referring to the act of baptism, that would be utterly contradictory to everything Paul just said in the very first part of verse 5. You're not saved by your deeds done in righteousness. You can't be saved by your baptism. And so the washing here is not an external washing done to the body in obedience to God by which he then rewards you with an internal washing. Not at all. The washing here is an act of God, not of man. It's an act here more specifically attributed to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, It is he, the Spirit, who is at work in this washing of regeneration and renewing. And I take those two phrases, I put them together. I think they go together in what Paul here is describing of the same idea, the same reality. So what about this work of the Spirit called regeneration? What is this when God is extending his mercy to save someone? Paul says that God does this by regenerating the person. What does that mean exactly? Regeneration in the original is a compound word. Pollen, genesis, pollen meaning again. Genesis coming from genemi, meaning to be born or created. So it's a compound word meaning again born or again created. You can see that, how it's very similar to being born again. Very similar. Here's, here's Wayne Grudem's definition of this. He says, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. He imparts new spiritual life to us. He says it's secret because this is an internal act of the Holy Spirit. It's an internal washing. You can't see it, um, although you, you will most certainly see the fruits of it. Um, but that's, that's Wayne Grudem. That's a theological definition of regeneration. But what I, what I want to do, what I really think will help us I get a fuller picture here of what Paul's referring to in this talk of regeneration is to look at some other passages in Scripture that speak to the same reality. Um, I think as we, as we do this, it'll help us develop in your minds the idea of what Paul means by regeneration. And so the first text we're going to look at, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Here in the book of Ezekiel... Uh, the context of this is that God is explaining to his people Israel uh, that despite their hard-heartedness, despite their rebellion, their uncleanness against God, that he will act, that he will act in mercy and will bring about a change in them. Um, this, This change that God will bring will actually result in the people of God being known for this change Uh, something that did not characterize the Old Covenant people of Israel where most did not have the Spirit. Um, So if you're there, Ezekiel chapter 36, let's look at verse 25 and following. So here God's already uh, stated the reality of Israel's uncleanness, and he goes on to say in verse 25, God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the 
heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. Now, what can we take away from this promise of God here in relation to regeneration? Well, first notice again that this act of mercy is an act of God. It's not an act of man. Man here is the rebellious sinner. God is the one who's graciously doing this necessary heart work. Also in Ezekiel here, um, he uses some of the very same visual descriptors here as in Titus chapter 3. Titus uses the word washing. In Ezekiel here, God speaks of this cleansing of water, this cleansing of water that removes the filthiness of the idolater's heart. Titus described this saving act of God as regeneration and renewal, where Ezekiel describes it as God taking out your old heart, your old heart of stone, and giving you a heart of flesh. And lastly here, Ezekiel likewise attributes this work directly to the Holy Spirit. Directly to the Holy Spirit. So this doctrine of God's bringing about the new birth is no new doctrine to the Bible. The book of Ezekiel was written 600 B.C. or close to that. And, and because it's been in the Bible for so long, God's people should understand it. We need to understand this doctrine and so as you now turn to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, which is really the classic passage on regeneration, um, here we'll see Jesus with Nicodemus, and Jesus will hold Nicodemus, Nicodemus accountable for not understanding and not being aware of regeneration in this doctrine. John chapter 3 Let's begin in verse 3. The scene here is, as most of you probably know, is that this Pharisee named Nicodemus has come by night to seek out Jesus. Um, he meets him with some greetings, affirming to Jesus that we know that you're from God. Nobody could, could be doing the miracles you're doing, Jesus, unless he was from God. So he, he, he greets him with this affirming greeting, and Jesus cuts, right to the, cuts all the small talk out and cuts right to the chase and starts talking to Nicodemus about regeneration. And so look at verse 3 and following. We'll read a good, good chunk of this because it's so, it's so helpful. Jesus answered and said to him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't understand the concept of being born again. So verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's, wo uh, mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, 
are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? It's quite amazing. It's an amazing passage. But first of all, from this passage in John chapter 3, we notice again very similar descriptors used again of what we've seen in Titus and Ezekiel. Here Jesus said you must be born of water and spirit. Speaking of the same, same realities that Ezekiel had spoken of with the cleansing of the sprinkling of the water, this washing which it speaks of in Titus, all of this language is what God does to the sinner symbolized by water. And again, here in John, again, the spirit being the agent of this new birth. But what we get here even, even in a more pointed fashion by Jesus is the necessity of the new birth. Verse 3, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless God performs this merciful act in your life and washes your old dirty and perverted heart, you cannot see, you cannot ever enter the kingdom of God, the necessity of being born again. So being born again is not a certain type of Christian. You know, many people will ask you, are, are you a born-again Christian? You know, well, really, there is no such thing. There's no, there's no other thing than a born-again Christian. Being born again is what makes one a Christian. And so lastly, look, look at verse 10 of chapter 3 there in John. Notice how, again how Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding the doctrine of regeneration. Again, just like we talked about in Sunday school, there's things that God wants you to learn, to study, to know. Jesus is not okay with theological ignorance. That's nothing to brag about, being ignorant. I don't want this to be a burden to you. I want it to be an encouragement to you to study even more the great doctrines of the Bible. And we talked about this Friday night at the prayer meeting, how many people... Many people don't understand how or why they're even saved. Many people trust in Christ and are saved because they trust in Christ, but they don't understand why them. They don't understand how God did it. They don't understand where their faith comes from. There's nothing more glorious than understanding that you've been saved by God apart from anything you've ever done. There's nothing that will make you more thankful to God than the doctrines of grace. Well, let's look, let's look quickly at just a couple more texts. Um, there's, there's many texts on regeneration. We're just going to look at a couple more here that I think will help you. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Pastor Emilio has, has preached this recently, but I think it's such an important text I bring you here for the sole reason that many Christians today have the understanding that they've been born again or they've been regenerated as a reaction by God to their repentance and faith. They think that basically by their believing in Christ, they're causing their, re their regeneration or they're their, their being born again. But look who, first, look who Peter attributes being born again too, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, 
to be born again. That's quite an amazing passage. God causes you to be born again. You don't cause yourself to be born again. It's, it's quite amazing. Peter says God does it. And it's necessary because a dead sinner, someone who's not been born again, cannot repent, nor do they want to. That's why God must act. That's why God does this, so that we will believe. Let's look at one more passage. Turn to James. The book of James, James chapter 1, verse 18. I want to turn to James because here we see the means by which regeneration occurs. We'll see the place in, in time that God brings his elect to new spiritual life. How does God do this? When does he do it? James chapter 1, verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, speaking of God's will, he brought us forth. That's the language there of, of being birthed. James says, in the exercise of his will, he birthed us. He gave us new life. He brought us forth by what? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. That's the means by which God saves us, by which he gives us new life. This regeneration occurs by the word of truth. That's the means. It's the word of truth, the word of Christ, the gospel. That's what James means. It's through the gospel. Again, God does not arbitrarily give new life. God does not cause the, the, the man out in the middle of the jungles who has never heard about Christ, God does not arbitrarily regenerate him and, and cause him to be born again. The Spirit of God does this through the message of Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the gospel. That's how God has set it up. That's why Romans chapter 10 says, how can they believe on him in whom they've not heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? Paul goes on to say, so that faith comes from hearing in hearing by the word of Christ. It's through the preaching of the gospel. That's the means that God does this. And oddly enough, strangely enough, God has chosen us, his people, to be the conduits of that message. God has chosen you to be the communication for him of the message of his son through which he regenerates people and saves people. We have the great privilege of being the messenger of the Most High King. So God regenerates, God saves, God brings new life through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. So, so we've seen in Titus chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn back there, and we've seen repeatedly in these other texts just how God-centered the new birth is. The new birth regeneration is all of God, it's not of man, Man is spiritually dead and in rebellion, and God is merciful. God is giving new life to dead sinners. And so because that's true, because it's all of God, it's only fitting here that Paul follows up all this discussion of our undeserved salvation with what verse 7 says. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
And so here, all Paul's doing is really restating the reality of verse 5, namely that God has saved us. That God has saved us. But here in verse 7, he says it this way. Not saying God has saved us, he says it this way. We have been justified by his grace. He's saying the same thing in a little different way, but because justification is not an exact synonym for salvation, but Paul can use this word, and he does often in reference to salvation. He does this because our justification is so central. It's so foundation. It's so important and prominent to the whole aspect of our salvation that to be justified, to say someone's justified, is to say that they have, in fact, been saved. But the word justification, more precisely, is the aspect of your salvation wherein God has declared you to be just. Your justification is that point in time when God said, you are righteous. It's when God has saved you. This happens at your conversion. At your conversion, God declares you to be just. He says that you, the sinner, are righteous. And he does that because he's given you Christ's righteousness. That's how he's able to say that, and that's why he does say it. That's why he does say it. Um, it's interesting here. Um, I don't know if, if you caught it, but it is interesting the way that Paul states the basis for our justification here. He says we're justified by grace. Now, what's, what, what, what might you think is missing there from that statement? What do you normally associate with justification? Don't you normally think, well, justification by faith. Justification by faith, most often what we're defending, what we're thinking about. Um, but here, Paul says, we're justified by grace. Doesn't even mention our faith. And so what Paul's getting at here is that there is a more foundational, there's a more fundamental reason than even your faith for your justification. There's something underlying your faith that's more prominent and more foundational than your faith and why you've been justified, and that's God's grace. It's God's grace that justifies you. Now, so there's no confusion. Faith most certainly is a part of this grace. Your faith is actually a gift of God. It's actually a grace as well. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us. It tells us that our faith is a gift. Our faith, your, your belief in, in God is a gift from Him. But that in and of itself is not the basis for your receiving his grace. That's a gift of his grace. The saving grace that we receive from God is given to us through the faith that he likewise has given to you. And all of this is based solely on his mercy. The only reason you believe is because of God's grace and mercy. And so to summarize all of this, and to put our justification, our regeneration, to put all this in perspective in some sort of logical order for you, to put all this in with all the other aspects of salvation that we've looked at, it all goes something like this. First, Jesus appeared to take your sins upon himself on the cross. And then based on the substitutionary work of Jesus, God extends his mercy to you while... You are yet a sinner. While you are yet disobedient, God extends this mercy. The Spirit of God, through the preaching of the gospel, causes regeneration. 
Your dead soul is given spiritual life. And now, because you have the spiritual life, you then very quite naturally repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And you worship the Christ, who now you mysteriously see as glorious. And with the spirit-wrought faith that you now have in Christ, God justifies you. God declares you to be righteous. And along with your justification, Paul says right here in verse 7, that you were adopted into God's family. You were adopted into God's family. You're now an heir according to the hope of eternal life. That's the irrevocable promise of heaven. The promise of heaven that Pastor Milo has so aptly been showing us from 1 Peter. All of this, all of this is the grace of God. All of it's from God. It's all of God completely unmerited, undeserved by us. You sit here saved by grace. At the end of the day, all you can say is soli deo gloria. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you all for our salvation. We thank you for everything each of you have done to save us. Father, we thank you for choosing us out of the multitudes of fallen sinners. Thank you, Christ, for coming and dying for us and for doing the work that we could not do. We thank you for your body and we thank you for your blood. And Spirit, we thank you for coming and regenerating us. We thank you for opening up our eyes, opening up our hearts, we thank you for taking off the veil that so blind us. For if that veil would have remained, we would have walked right over the edge of the cliff of eternity, right into hell forever. And so, God, we thank you. God, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for these glorious truths. We thank you for giving us your word that teaches us this so that we can appreciate our salvation. We thank you that... You have explained to us these things so that we can praise you and be more thankful. Help us to be more thankful. Help us to remember our fallen state. Help us to remember what we were. And help us to thank you more for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.